Would you bow with me once more? Father in heaven, I ask now in Jesus' name, would you please uh, give my voice the strength and by your Holy Spirit speak through it, Lord, to each one of us. The word you've laid on my heart, would you translate it to every person here today that we would see your beauty, we would be touched by your words and go out in your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story of an instructor who was conducting a seminar for executives, and he was focusing on the topic of decision-making. He started out by telling the story of five frogs that were sitting on a log. He said, quote, four of the frogs decided to jump into the water. How many frogs are left on the log? The class almost unanimously responded together, one. Yes, they could do basic arithmetic. But the instructor replied, No, you're wrong. All of them are still sitting on the log. Because you see, deciding is different than doing. We sang the great hymn this morning. I have decided to follow Jesus. But to that I would add, there is a difference between deciding to follow Jesus and actually following Jesus. Would you agree? Decision is one thing, following is another. We have to follow through on our decision. Many Christians today are like those frogs. They've decided to follow Jesus. But when it comes to the daily decision to follow through in active obedience to Jesus' word, regardless of the personal cost, they falter. And like the frogs, they're still stuck on that log of mediocrity, afraid to obey Jesus' command to actually jump into the water. In our text this morning from the Gospel of John, it places the spotlight on one man's series of decisions in regards to Jesus and how they altered the course of not only his own life, but the life of his son and the life of his entire family. I would invite you now to turn there with me, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and beginning in verse 43. We have been working through our survey series in the the Gospel of John, and we are today in part three, entitled Taking Jesus at His Word. And we're going to see that through the course of this story. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, Jesus has just left Samaria a couple of days earlier, where he had met with the famous woman at the well. And of course, we know the story of how Jesus met the woman at the well They had a conversation about living water. He revealed to her that he knew about her past. He knew that she'd had five husbands. The man she was now with was not her husband. This so impressed her that she goes back to the townspeople. She brings them back to Jesus. They converse with Jesus. He stays there, and many more of them believe. This has just happened. And now Jesus is heading north, back to the region of Galilee. And he stops at the town of Cana. And of course, Cana, you'll recognize as he's come full circle, this is where he performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. So he's gone on a journey, he's gone south, he's gone down to Jerusalem, and now he's heading back north, and he stopped in Cana, and now we're going to pick up the account in verse 46. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. 
Now here we see a man coming to Jesus. And the first thing we learn about this man is that he is a royal official. Some scholars believe that this man may have in fact been a relative of King Herod's. So by the standard of the day, to be a royal official would have meant he was above the the common rabble. He was someone important. But to have been a relative of King Herod's would have guaranteed that this man was extremely rich and powerful. The second thing we learn about this man is that he is a father. He's a father with a son at home who is dying. He is deathly sick, and none of his wealth and none of his power can save his son's life. Scholars estimate that at that time in history, only 50% of children lived to the age of five. Can you imagine that sort of mortality rate? It's, it's a flip of a coin whether or not your child's going to make it to the age of five because, remember, modern medicine was not modern at that time. There was no penicillin. You could die just as easily from a flu, an ear infection. There were so many things that children could die from. So this was a very common thing, that children died at a young age. This was a desperate situation. And so now, knowing this man is a royal, royal official, he's, he's wealthy, he's powerful, we can be confident that the very best in doctors and medicine that were available at the time had already been sought out and had failed. But then, in his desperation, this man hears rumors about this miracle-working rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he made the decision to seek Jesus out, and he walks the 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana, to beg Jesus to come and heal his son. Now, we just skip over that. He walked 20 miles to come and see Jesus, but let me just put that in context. 20 miles is about the same distance as from Clarny to Boisevane as the bird flies. Who here has ever walked to Boisevane? Okay, I'm not seeing any hands. I'll put mine down now, too. I haven't done it. <laughs> and I didn't think anyone else had, either. 20 miles is also roughly the same distance to Cartwright. Anyone walk to Cartwright? Cartwright to here? No, no one? We know, when we put it into context, that's a long walk. That's a long journey. And in fact, the, the, the terrain and the roads between Capernaum and Cana at that time would have been rolling and rugged. And he didn't have Nike Airs. He was wearing sandals. He's tired. It is a long, hard journey. And what we see here is that you've got to really, really, really want to see someone to walk that far. We see here this father's motivation. He is highly motivated to see his son saved, and so he makes a hard journey of 20 miles, and we see that he does it in the span of a day. This wasn't a mile a day. He was doing it all in one shot. And so here we see this proud and important man, a government official in royal garments, so motivated to save his son that he disregards his personal dignity. He makes this 20-mile march, and then we see him dusty and weary from the journey. He humbles himself before a poor traveling rabbi, and he actually begs him, the text says, he begs him to come and heal his son. What I find remarkable is that no matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're important or unimportant, when people come to the end of themselves, they all need Jesus. 
We all need Jesus. You see, for most of us, until we realize just how helpless we are without him, we continue on our merry way thinking, you know, I've got this. I'm in control of my life. I can take care of my problems. But invariably, I've seen this again and again. When serious illness or when tragedy strikes or when we try to fix our own sinful addictions or when we realize that, hey, my own death is looming before me, we suddenly realize just how helpless we really are. And we realize that we need a power greater than ourselves to call upon. And that's the position this man found himself in. Royal official, relative of King Herod or not, he realized he could do nothing. He was helpless. He needed a power greater than himself. You may have heard that this past week, the world-renowned physicist Stephen Hawking died on Wednesday at age 76. Now, of all the scientists in the world, modern scientists, I should say, he became probably one of the most famous of our generation. Of course, some of it had to do with the cool synthesizer he spoke through, him being in that wheelchair. But nonetheless, you've probably seen or heard of Stephen Hawking. You may have also heard of his beliefs about God. He once said, quote, I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Now what compounds his bleak outlook, you know, basically saying, you know, once we shut down, that's it, there's nothing after, is that the Bible, God's word, would say that unless he repented and called upon God at the last moment, which I fervently hope that he did, then according to Jesus' words in Matthew 22, verse 13, he has been cast into the outer darkness. Now many would say to that, how could God condemn someone? Well, to that, Jesus gave the answer to Nicodemus that we saw last time in John chapter 3, verse 18. He said to him, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, my friends, God loves us, and he desires us to believe in Jesus and be saved. But when we reject God's one and only means of salvation, it is not he but we who condemn ourselves. It is our decision about Jesus that makes all the difference in every phase of life up into and including eternity. And God will honor each one of our decisions. He will not touch our free will. The choice and the consequences of our choice belong to each individual alone. And we return now to our desperate father in John chapter 4. And we see that this man here, he's on the right track. First, he realized how helpless he was to save his precious son. And second, we see that he made the decision to seek Jesus out no matter how hard the journey. And then third, we see him humble himself. By abandoning the pretense and the dignity of his royal position, he actually begs Jesus to come and heal his son. Now, we've got we've to put that in context for a second here. This man is used to having others come and beg him for things, right? He's a royal official. People are petitioning him, begging him to do things all the time. He's used to this. But now the shoe's on the other foot. 
This may have, in fact, been the first time in his life that he's bagged anyone for anything. But he realizes that he's going to humble himself to beg Jesus to heal his son. Now, to all of this, we would expect, I would expect Jesus to reply by saying something to him just warm and wonderful, right? But does he? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verse 48, Jesus replies, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Hmm. That seems a little harsh. It seems like he's kind of throwing a little cold water on this man's urgency, his belief. But we need to properly understand why Jesus replied that way. In order to do that, we need to look at the context. First, notice that when Jesus said, you people, it is plural. Meaning that while Jesus was replying, of course, to the desperate father, he was speaking to the entire crowd that had gathered around. Second, Jesus' miracle-working reputation preceded him. You see, his first miracle was at the wedding feast right there at Cana, when he had turned the water into wine. Also, if you glance back at verse 45 of this passage, you'll notice that the Galileans who welcomed Jesus had also seen his miracles down in Jerusalem during the Passover, and they were here hoping for a repeat performance. So Jesus' harsh words are a rebuke to them, effectively saying, You're not here because you believe in me. All you want is a show. You have enthusiasm for signs and wonders, but no commitment to follow me in obedience and in faith. And people can do the same thing with Jesus today. We can treat him like a spiritual ATM. You know, we we go to him and let's see, what do I want? You know, I want one order of salvation, two orders of spiritual blessings, three orders of physical blessings, uh, guaranteed lifelong protection. Um, oh, yeah, um, of course, I want to live many years, and when I finally check out at, say, 105, it'll be a peaceful death. Yep, I got them all in order. That's what we want, right? And we go and we punch in our order. But is that the way it works? Is that the way it works? What Jesus called for was something entirely different. You see, when it comes to actually doing things for Jesus, people who treat him like a spiritual ATM, when it comes to things like actually obeying his word, things like sacrificial service, like following him no matter the personal cost, things like forgiving our enemies, praying for those who insult us, giving of our best, willingly sacrificing whatever is most precious to us, evangelizing the lost, being persecuted for his name, well, then these sorts of people are nowhere to be found. So let me just ask you today, why did you come to church today? Is it because you came here for a good show? Is it because your schedule finally cleared up enough so that you could make it? Is it because you want other people to see how religious you are? Is it because you're somehow just hoping to get something out of it? Or did you come today because like that father, you found in Jesus something only he can provide. Only he can provide you with the healing that you need. Only he can provide you with salvation. Only he can provide you with hope for today and for eternity. And so today you've come to give Jesus the worship and the adoration that he so richly deserves because you want to offer yourself once more to Jesus 
as a living sacrifice, holding nothing back. Not your time, not your ambition, not your money, not even your very life. Because that is the only reasonable act of worship that he deserves. That is the only reasonable response that such a savior deserves in response. Because the one who gave everything for you, the one who died for you, does he deserve anything less but our entire lives? You see, making the decision to seek Jesus is a good first step, but don't miss this. The why is of paramount importance. Why? Do you know your why? Jesus does. Like the crowd gathered that day, Jesus knows your heart and he knows mine. There is no fooling the Lord. Remember that just as Jesus knew everything about Nathaniel standing under the fig tree before he'd ever met him, Jesus knew everything about that crowd standing there that day, and he knew everything about that father too. But take note that though he addresses them as one, there is something that distinguishes that father from the crowd. You see, the crowd is there for a show, but the father is there to save his son. The one has a a want, but the other has a desperate need. The crowd had gone to Jesus because they wanted a great story to tell their friends the next day. But the father, he had traveled 20 miles to Jesus because he knew that Jesus was his last and best hope to save his son's life. And so in verse 49, undeterred by Jesus' rebuke, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. Now here the father faces another crucial decision. Would he go back home without Jesus going with him? Because you see, all this time, he'd been asking Jesus to come with him. You see, clearly he believed that if Jesus could physically lay hands on his son, that he had the power to heal him. But now he had to run through his brain very quickly. Could Jesus, did Jesus have the power to heal his son at a mere word from 20 miles away? This was the moment of testing, the moment of faith. What would he decide? Would he believe Jesus' word and depart? Or would he doubt and continue to beg him to go with him? Well, the second half of verse 50 tells us the response That just like that, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Let me read that one more time in case you missed it. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The first time I read that verse this week, my jaw almost dropped. You know, I've probably read it dozens of times before in my studies, reading through the Gospels. I'm sure I have. But this time, when I read that line, it just jumped out off that page and grabbed me by the shirt. And in that moment, the Spirit just whispered to me, What would it look like if you just took me at my word? No matter what, no questions asked. If you just took me at my word 
every second of every day of your entire life, what would that look like? And I've been thinking about that question all week. Because I know my life would look a little bit different if I, without hesitation, took him at his word. So let me ask you the same question. What would it look like if you just took Jesus at his word? No matter what, no questions asked. What situation are you currently facing where you just need to take Jesus at his word? Let me encourage you, whatever that is, to do so today. That is exactly what the desperate father did. With his son's life hanging in the balance, he made that difficult decision to take Jesus at his word. He jumped off the log into the water, so to speak. He exercised his faith by starting that long journey home alone. And notice that meanwhile, the crowd has to disperse. No doubt disappointed that they did not see any miracles that day. Little realizing that they had heard one. From the Logos himself, the word that was in the beginning. That all things were created through him at his command. That his word alone, by saying, your son will live had performed a miracle, and they left that day, and they missed it. Incredible what Jesus can do. And so here we see, the crowd disperses, and when the payoff for the man taking Jesus at his word, verse 51, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. Here we can see their excitement. They're so ecstatic. They're literally running down the road because they just can't wait till he gets there. They're going to meet him. They're so excited. They run and they tell him the good news. We can only imagine what that meeting was like. Maybe he let out a whoop and he did the Jewish version of the happy dance. Whatever it was, he is ecstatic. He is over the moon. And then take note. Immediately after hearing the good news, verse 52 tells us that He inquired as to the time when his son got better. And this, I believe, we can detect just a hint of doubt. He's thinking, did Jesus really heal my son from 20 miles away at a mere word? And then he's thinking, was it just a coincidence? Would he have just gotten better anyways? But the servants replied to his question, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Now look at the father's reaction in verse 53. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And now watch this beautiful end to the story. So he and all his household believed. Isn't that incredible? Just like that. His, his entire life changes. His son is healed, and he and his entire house put saving faith, belief, in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful story. How one man's need sent him out on this series of decisions that led to not only his son being healed, but his entire family believing in Jesus Christ and receiving salvation. My friends, there are no coincidences with God. His word is real. His word is true. His power is real. His power is true in our lives. His love is boundless, and his provisions are always available to those who will seek him out, who will ask with a sincere heart, 
not doubting, but believing. And I was reminded of all of these powerful truths this past week at the Senior Youth Retreat at Valley View Bible Camp. You know, I went into the weekend already sick with this terrible cold, fever, sore throat, cough, flu thing that just seems to go on forever. And so on Friday afternoon, my prayer was literally, please, Lord, just help me get through this. And so we get there, and Friday evening goes well enough. And because I have these awesome, responsible youth leaders like Caden and Maddie and Mitchell and Philip to help me out, <clears throat> did I mention responsible? <laughs> just making sure they're paying attention back there. <clears throat> so I tell them that they're in charge of getting everyone to bed at a decent hour so I can get some much-needed sleep. And so I pop my nighttime cold and flu medication, and I was asleep at around 10.30. Then at precisely 1.25 a.m., I suddenly awoke to the urgent, repeated words, Danny, you've got to come now. And I wake up, and I am such, I'm just in such a fog. But the urgency of the words, they were setting off alarm bells in my head that something was very wrong. This was an emergency. And so I jumped up out of bed as much as I could in my state, and I followed them down the hall and over to the girls' side of the lodge. Somewhere along the way, I asked, what's going on? What happened? And one of them replied, Olivia's having a seizure. This is Olivia Harder. I learned that she's never had a seizure before. And so while I'm trying to process all of this as I'm running in my haze, I run around the corner into her room, and the two other girls that were staying with her in that room, they were just sitting there in stunned silence. And Olivia was lying there perfectly still, her, her face hidden from me. And there's this pile of spit and drool on the bed, and for a split second, I thought she wasn't breathing. And then to my massive relief, she all of a sudden rolls over and she continues the seizure, which, as frightening as that was, she was clearly breathing. So this is the initial relief. But then, at not having a seizure firsthand before, the glassy-eyed expression and the way she was behaving, it made my thoughts jump to it possibly being an aneurysm. And I quickly learned that she'd never had a seizure before, so no one had any idea what was going on, what had triggered this. And honestly, it felt like a nightmare. So there I am, still in a fog. I'm doing my best to assess the situation, to make the right decisions. The other girls had done everything just right in how to respond to a seizure. Mitchell has first aid training and was remarkably calm, so I had him call 911. And then with the ambulance on the way, I sat down beside Olivia, and I just gently put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, let's pray. And she had already calmed down, but then as I prayed, I just said, Lord, I don't know what's going on with Olivia, but please heal her, whatever this is. And the moment I said heal her, I just felt this gentle ripple flow down her arm. And the others then prayed as well. And just like that, somehow I knew God had intervened, that Olivia was going to be okay. And so I just said at the end, she's going to be okay. And then within a minute or two, she rolls over and she asks, what happened? And by the time the paramedics arrived 15 minutes later, she was herself again. And they took her to Portage Hospital. They ran a series of tests whereupon the doctor said, if you hadn't told me what had happened... Just from looking at your test results and examining you, I would never have guessed that you just had a seizure. I've since learned that that is highly unusual. Nonetheless, the doctor gave her a clean bill of health. He says, you can go back to the retreat. 
And so by 6 a.m. that morning, all of us, including Olivia, had a great day tubing on the hill. And in our Bible sessions, God just did some really great work. Not in spite of what happened, but because of what happened. And at first, of course, I wondered if it was all just a coincidence. You know, I'd prayed, the ripple, like all that. She was going to get better anyways, right? But then I remember Jesus told us, if we ask anything in his name with a sincere heart, we don't doubt but believe it will be done. And I will say again, there are no coincidences with God. His word is true. His power is real. His love is boundless. And his provisions are always available to those who ask him with a sincere heart. And so I left last weekend with an even deeper conviction that, my friends, we can take Jesus at his word. And I pray that you will leave here this morning with that deep conviction as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the Logos, the Word, you were with God in the beginning. You were with Him, you are Him, and you spoke forth all things that exist. Not one thing has been made without you. And you've exercised that power through your word again and again and again, countless, infinite number of times throughout the course of human history, you have exercised the power of your word. We see it manifest throughout the pages of scripture, how you commanded the waves to be still at your word, how you could heal at your word, how you forgave sin at your word, and how, Lord, you healed this man's son even at a great distance, just by simply saying the words, your son will live. And so, Father, it is also the word that you have seen fit to record for us, Jesus' words, where you said to each one of your disciples to follow, that when we ask anything in your name, with a believing, sincere heart, without doubt, no matter how fantastic it seems, you will hear and you will answer So, Father, give us this deep conviction that we can take your Son at his word, no matter what. And, Lord, if that word today is the simple three words, I love you. My precious son, my precious precious daughter, I love you. You can take me at my word. And if you have any doubts, look at the cross. I did that for you. I did that because I love you. I did that because I want you not to be condemned, but to be saved. Lord Jesus, may we each take you at your word today and leave here, not only having made a decision to intellectually believe in you, but that, oh Lord, our hearts would follow through, our feet would follow through, our lives would follow through, Lord, that we would jump into the water fully and that we would follow you truly in all things taking you at your word. May we go out in the power of your word and in the power of your name today. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.